Well, for those of you who were, uh, who were around Green Tree prior to uh, Christmas and Advent and Thanksgiving, you'll probably remember, or hopefully you will, that we were uh, in a sermon series on the book of Genesis. And uh, we started that series back in June. We're preaching on it uh, up, up until Advent. Now we're going to jump back into it today and carry it all the way up through June of uh, this year, early June uh, of this year. And this morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 24. And uh, it is the longest chapter in Genesis and uh, the, in a lot of ways the strangest chapter in Genesis, which is saying a lot if you've ever read Genesis, uh, that, that it would be the strangest. And really it is uh, basically, in a sense, a love story. It's not kind of the sappy, cheesy, you know, chick flick. It's really more of your, it's really, that's not to offend anybody, hopefully. Um, that, it's really more of your Western where they ride off in the sunset uh, together, except for, you know, it's ancient Middle East, so they ride off on camels at the end instead of on horses. But, you know, you get the picture. Um, what I want to do is read for us Genesis 24, uh, 1 to 9, but I just will recall your attention to, if you don't remember, uh, from earlier in Genesis, that from chapter 12, we found, you know, we met this guy, Abraham, who was like the father of the faith, the great patriarch. And God called him to leave the city, his hometown, everything he knew, to leave Ur, it was the name of the city, and go to this new promised land that God was going to give him and to dwell there and live there uh, by faith. And uh, God promised him all these descendants. Finally, at, at 100 years of age, he finally has his first child. He has Isaac, or his first child by Sarah, his wife. And uh, at that point, you know, they got the descendants. They're living in the land. They're still not quite, you know, they still don't own any land. And then by Genesis 23, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, she dies. And, um, and Isaac is yet unmarried. But we know that Isaac needs to get married. And that's what kind of this whole chapter uh, is about. Isaac's in his 40s here, which is, you know, that's kind of late in our culture, but for that culture to be in your 40s and not be married was just kind of incomprehensible. And it was the parent's job to make sure the kid got married, not like it is today where it's kind of my job to make sure, you know, I get married, marry the right person, and hopefully my family likes it. But uh, in that day, the family was in charge of it. Uh, so read with me Genesis 24, 1 to 9. You can turn in your Bibles. The words will be on the screen uh, if you need them. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I might make you swear by the Lord. That's a special vow they took back then, in case you're wondering what's going on there. Uh, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you'll go to my country, my kindred, to take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if she's not willing to follow you, you'll be free from this oath. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. We sit beneath it and ask that you would show us wonderful, glorious, relevant things about you. Open our eyes and ears to see and hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is 
story is strange enough already, but I really haven't even read kind of the strangest parts of the story that we'll actually uh, get to here in just a few minutes. It's a strange story, but I believe it has powerful applications. It's really a story all about, um, all about decision-making, following God in the midst of uncertainty. Decision-making and following God in uncertainty. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I mean, if you are a Christian, then it will undoubtedly it is your concern to know the answer to the question, what is God's will? What does God want? How should I live? What should I do? What decisions uh, should I make? You have a persistent purpose to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, I would say that even though it's our desire to make good decisions, we live in a, in a time of kind of rampant, a culture of kind of rampant indecision, of anxiety over kind of the biggest decisions in life. And, and part of that's because we live in just simply uncertain times. I mean, a few years ago, probably most of us believed that we live, hey, we live in a stable country with a stable government and a stable economy. Uh, we're not all thinking that way quite anymore as we're in the midst of a deep recession. You know, many of you might have thought, uh, I have a stable family, a stable marriage, a stable relationship, this, and, and things have come unglued in the last uh, few weeks, few months, few years, um, and things are different. It's a time of uncertainty. Uh, I know a lot of you are making big decisions right now. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you are starting new jobs. Some of you are thinking about you know, new careers. Uh, some of you are thinking about getting married. Some are thinking about uh, getting divorced. Some are thinking about going to college. Some are thinking about what they're going to major in in college. Uh, all kinds of big decisions about ministry and money and uh, family and education, all those things weighing in on the horizon. And we don't really know which way things will go. And so it breeds this uncertainty. And sometimes it's hard to make decisions and move forward. It's kind of a paralysis by analysis type of situation. But I think that what we want to do from this passage, we want to know really two things. One is, how do I make a godly decision? How do I know what God's will is, you know, assuming that I care? How do I know what God's will is and follow it? And then two, how is God leading me, guiding me, working in those situations, in those decisions? How is he taking care uh, of me? And can I trust him at all? So I think the scripture, the, the scripture this passage shows us really uh, three things, um, Three T's. I don't normally alliterate my points. I think it's always kind of cheesy when pastors do that, but uh, fell out that way this time, so I'll go with it. But uh, this, pas- this passage teaches us to uh, train our minds in Scripture, to test our decisions in community and by character, and to trust uh, God's character, His work, and His plan. Uh, now, how did this work out for Abraham? How did this work for Abraham? Let's look at the passage and see what he does. Because Abraham has a decision to make, right? He has a son who's in his 40s, and, uh, and he has to get him married. Now, for all of us, it's not God's will for us to get married. Some of us, God's will to be single. So how does Abraham know that it's God's will for, for Isaac, you know, to get married? Sometimes God would speak directly to Abraham. You know, you can see some of those passages in Genesis. But usually, uh, Abraham is having to make decisions uh, like we do, tracing out God's will from God's word. God, he has to trace out what God's purpose is, what God's will is for what he already knew about what God had said. And what are, there's basically three things that Abraham says here. If you listen to what I read in the passage, there's kind of three things he says to the servant. What does he say to the servant? He says, look, number one, my son needs a wife, right? Number two, uh, don't let my son go back to the land I came from, back to, you know, my old stomping grounds. He can't live there. And three, don't let him take a wife from the people we live with now, this, uh, these Canaanites is a nation that they, uh, where they were living. So that's, that's kind of the three things. But where did he get that from? Where did Abraham get that decision from? Where did he understand that to be 
uh, God's will. Well, he got it from what God had already said in his word. Look how he kind of traces this out the, from the trajectory of what God has already said. If you look at Genesis 15, 5, uh, you remember back, God had Abraham come out and he said, look, look, Abraham, look at the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. In other words, you'll have a lot of descendants. Okay, he says a little more clearly, even in Genesis uh, chapter 21, down here at the bottom, he says, you know, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So God has already told them that Isaac is going to be the child of promise, that he's going to have children from Isaac. And so he knows if Isaac's going to have children, he needs a wife. And so that's, that's the first thing, get him, get him a wife. But why not let Isaac just go back to the old land, right? I mean, Abraham says very specifically, do not take him back, you know, to uh, my hometown, so to speak. And the servant says, well, why not? You know, why, let's, does it really matter? And Abraham says, yes, it does. Why does it matter? Well, there's two other passages here that, that I think are clear. Uh, if you remember back to Genesis 12, the great calling of Abraham, uh, what does he say at the bottom? Uh, he says, I'll make of you a great nation and bless you. Make your name great. You'll be a, you'll be a blessing. And at the top, he says, I'm calling you from your country to your father's house uh, or from your father's house to the land that I'll show you. In other words, he's saying, I'm calling you to, get, to, a, to a special place, a special land at this time. You're to dwell there, live there by faith until I actually give it to you. So he says, don't let Isaac go back there because then he might not ever come back to the land God's promised again. Okay, well, why does a servant have to make this crazy trip all the way back to Abraham's old stomping grounds, find a wife and convince some woman to come with him sight unseen to come back and marry Isaac. I mean, that's a crazy plan. doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, why do that? Why not just take a wife? There's plenty of Canaanite women around here. Why not just take a wife? Well, some people have said, well, you know, God doesn't like interracial marriage, and that's kind of what he's doing there. Uh, but that's not at all what's in view in Scripture. God doesn't care about uh, the color of their skin. He cares about the gods they worship. He cares about the fact that the Canaanites are worshipers of different gods, other gods. And he knows if Isaac marries one of those women, he's likely to be led astray and away from uh, the worship of God. And so from, that, from those things, tracing out God's word, Abraham's able to make this firm decision. Okay, servant, this is what you're going to do. Go back to my old family, back to my old, uh, my old hometown, find a wife for my son. Don't take him there. You, take, you go there and find a woman that's willing to come back and be... Uh, with him now i would submit to you that the only way he can make a decision that's that and that's a hard decision the only way he can make a decision like that is because he has trained his mind in scripture he's trained his mind uh, in god's word otherwise he, he he wouldn't he wouldn't he wouldn't know these things but he's he, he's his first response to the question of what am i going to do about isaac is what has god said what has God said? What does Scripture say? He internalizes that. He's trained his mind in it, and he begins to process it and act uh, on that. Now, I know, like I said, many of you are making big decisions right now about kids or education, retirement, marriage, career, all kinds of things like that. Um, I know you'd like to have the confidence in making those decisions that Abraham has in making his decisions. Um, if you're really... Uh, if you're really serious about that, if you're really serious about desiring that kind of confidence, uh, then you have to train your mind uh, in Scripture. Uh, you have to. I use that word train there very intentionally. I would say that, you know, about a year ago, I really didn't even know what the word train really meant because I'd probably never really trained for anything in my life. But my sister-in-law 
she challenged me to run a half marathon. And if you know me very well, you know, I can't let a challenge go, you know, un, unaccounted for. I've got to, you know, I've got to do it. So she challenged me to do this. I never run probably more than five miles in my life. I'm not a runner, not an athlete, but I decided to try to do this. And so I was like, I don't know, how do you get ready to run a half marathon and just go out and run? Uh, she was like, no, you need a training plan. Uh, so she gives me this, you know, Ryan Hall, didn't know who that was at the time, apparently he's a famous runner, gives me this training plan that Ryan Hall has developed, and, you know, it tells me every day what I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to run this, some days I'm running, you know, short run, three miles, some days 12 miles, some days speed work on the track, uh, some days, you know, tempo runs, all kinds of weird stuff, I didn't really know what the terminology was, but I was just following the training plan, and uh, sure enough, you know, when it came time to run the race, I was actually ready to, you know, I didn't do great, but I was able to complete the race and meet the challenge um, that was in front of me. But one thing I found out is that to do something like that requires a lot of uh, preparation, a uh, a lot of initiation, a lot of training. I mean, it just simply does. I had to plan, you know, around my schedule, my wife, my kids, I had to plan the time to do that kind of thing. You simply can't hope to be prepared for a 13-mile race just because you think you jogged around the block a couple times. You have to have training. And I would say that just like uh, you need training to do anything like that, you need training in Scripture. You need to train your mind to think biblically in order to make good decisions. We have like a million, I mean, think about it, how many, millions of messages coming at us constantly in our cultures, information overload. And so to think that we could kind of get our minds stabilized in Scripture in the course of, you know, a five, ten minute glance at the Bible is, is in a sense, you know, kind of naive. And so I would say that, that God's will will not be plain until His Word is primary. That God's will is not going to be plain until His Word is actually primary in our lives. I think a big reason our decisions are so anxiety-ridden and so tough sometimes is because we're not as well grounded in Scripture as we would like to be. And so I would just simply stop here and challenge each of us. I would just challenge each of us to come up with some kind of training plan to read Scripture thoroughly uh, in 2010. I'll help you. I'll give you one. If you want to read through the Bible in a year, if you want to get together with a buddy and study the book of Matthew or whatever, I'll help you develop, uh, develop something or somebody uh, at the church will. All you have to do is ask. Um, if, you, if you're about to make a big decision in your life, I would encourage you to, to take time, set aside a four or five, six hour block of time someday and just, just read scripture and pray and see, just see what happens. Uh, I had a friend of mine who's a businessman. He said, I got to, uh, you know, I have big, some big decisions to make about my business pretty soon. And, and he decided to take a, a day, you know, secluded and do just that. And he said, you know, it was just totally freaking me out because uh, I just thought, I'm going to go stir crazy. I don't know what am I going to do. You know, I'll, 10 minutes in, I'll just be, you know, going nuts. And he said, you know, it was one of the, the best experiences I've had in a long time. And it really, it, was really a, it was really fulfilling for him, but also cleared his mind to be able to make some tough decisions about what he needs to do. And it really, it was really, a, it was uh, right now. And so uh, I would encourage and challenge all of us to have a plan for training our mind in Scripture. God's will is not going to be plain until His Word is primary. Uh, so if that's the, if that's the first thing we see from the passage. The second thing is really uh, to test our decisions. I mean, how do we test a decision? Uh, well, I think it says here we test it in community and then by character. And then notice when Abraham comes up with this plan, right? I've talked about it. It's kind of a crazy plan. 
he doesn't just kind of assume that he, he has it right. He doesn't just assume that, oh, he's ready to go here. He, in verse 2, what does he do? He calls in his most trusted servant, uh, his, his longtime servant, calls him in and says, here's my plan. What do you think about it? And the servant says, well, I don't know about this. What do you think about this? And they trade, you know, barbs back and forth, and they settle on it together. He's submitting his plan to community. He's finding somebody he trusts, somebody he loves, somebody who else is, is a godly uh, advisor to be able to in, give input uh, into his life. We see the same thing later when they go and, and they find Rebecca, Isaac's wife. They go to her family, and they get input from her family. They, they say, you know, are you reading this the same way uh, that we are? And so when, I, when, when Abraham says to a servant, you know, I have this crazy plan to send you back to where I live and bring back my uh, wife or Isaac, um, they, they're going to test that plan in community. And I, I would submit that one of our biggest issues in decision-making, being good decision-makers, fi- knowing the will of God, is simply the fact that we don't want to give up any authority uh, to other people in our lives. Uh, you know, men, what are we famous for? We're lost on the road. What are we not going to do? Not going to stop and ask for directions. I mean, and, and if, we, if we don't want to stop and ask for direction in a little thing like how to get to Susie's house, you know, we, then, then how are we going to ask for uh, advice and wisdom on something huge in our lives? It takes, I mean, it takes serious uh, humility. We have to have godly people that we trust that will just, I mean, plain and simple, just tell us if what we're doing is dumb or not. You know, we just need somebody looking on the outside, looking in, saying, uh, yeah, you need to reevaluate the situation. I can think of a lot of areas in my life that this has been really important, but one was uh, right after I graduated from seminary in 2005, and uh, right at graduation, we had uh, two job offers, two calls. Uh, one was to go to Tallahassee and to be a church planter with this existing core group, and the other was to uh, be an assistant pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's kind of like, okay, here's our two jobs, here's our two calls, which one are we going to do? And uh, I was really leaning toward going to Tallahassee and doing the church planning deal. I really liked these people. So we got back, and, you know, it's like, all right, we need to talk to some people about this. You know, this is a big decision. First, you know, real, uh, real job after grad school, et cetera. And so started talking to people, of course, first and foremost, my wife, and we talked and prayed together. Uh, and then I started to ask other fr- good friends of mine that I trusted, other pastors who knew me, who were in the ministry, et cetera. And they started pointing out all these things about this position that I had not, I just had not seen them. I just couldn't see them. And as we talked, as we were in community together, all of a sudden I began to see things so much more clearly. And uh, in one of the, probably the best decisions of my life, I turned that offer down. And uh, it would have. Now I can look back on it and say it would have been terrible for them, terrible for me. It would have been. It would have been a terrible decision. And I'd made a good decision, not because I knew what I was doing. Clearly, I didn't because I was about to make the wrong one. But because I had other people in my life helping me and directing me on uh, what to do, giving me some, giving me some, uh, some insight. So we need community. We can't isolate ourselves. We can't be so sensitive that we can't receive criticism about our uh, plans. And I would say we also need you know, community, people around us, to be able to kind of push us off the dime. There's so often there's so much indecision you know, in, in the world, like I talk to guys and they're like, yeah, I've been dating this girl for eight years and I'm just wondering if I should marry her or not. I'm like, that's a question to ask a long time ago. It's like fish or cut bait at this point. You know, you got to get something done. Make a decision now. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're killing her. So I um, apologize for whoever just got offended by that comment. Um, but but it's, it's true. 
We have to. We need people in our lives to help us get off the dime and make decisions that we need to make. And I think I think college kids kind of have it the worst here. Like I remember when I was in college, which really wasn't that long ago. Uh, but I was when I was in college. I remember dreading going to the junior year because by your junior year. That, you know, what question is coming, right? What, are, what, are, what does everybody start asking you junior year, especially senior year? What are you going to do when you graduate? You know, you get that in high school, you get that in college. Constantly, that is the question coming. What are you going to do when you graduate? And, you know, I just sat and looked like a deer in the headlights. I don't know. Uh, go to more school, I guess. I mean, that's the best thing I can think of. Uh, college seems like a pretty good deal. Grad school, maybe even better. Um, but that's the, you know, that's the mentality. We need community to help us figure out what are we passionate about? What are we purpose? What are we, what has God made us for? And so I would say to all you making career decisions or college decisions like that to, if you have to, I would say choose passion and purpose over pay. Choose passion and purpose over pay every time. You'll be glad uh, that you did. You make, if, you make, if you're making all the money in the world doing something that makes you miserable, you will, it, it, won't, be, it won't be good. Um, so choose be in community and find out what you're made to do, what your purpose to do, and uh, let people help you. Um, not only test our decisions in community, but we test them by character. Uh, look, look how the servant does this. So this is where the story gets really strange. And I'll, I'll just read this to you. So the servant, right, what's he going to do? He's going to get on his camels. They're going to ride out, and, uh, and, and he goes to this land. I, I'm guessing he's never been there before. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of miles that he travels. And uh, how he gets there where where's this girl coming from where's this woman going to come from where's he going to find her well here's a little test he devises um verse 12 and following so first thing he does is pray that's good he says uh, oh lord god of my master abraham please grant me success today show steadfast love to my master behold i'm standing by the spring of water that's the well they at a well you know they don't have faucets and tap water they have to go to the well and draw the water uh i'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw let the young woman to whom i shall say please let down your jar that i may drink and then who shall say drink and i will water your camels let her be the one you have appointed for your servant isaac by this i will show that you have shown steadfast love to my master before he had finished speaking behold rebecca who was born to bethuel the son of milcah wife of naor abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder the young woman was very attractive in appearance a maiden whom no man had known she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran and ran again to the well to draw water. And then she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not so there you go foolproof way to find a spouse all you got to do is you know it's the camel watering test it always works um we have to remember here that you know they don't have the things we do they don't have like singles bars and like eHarmony and match.com and you know meddling matchmaker friends getting in the midst of everything they don't have that kind of stuff uh, but what he does, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this is not just a random action. He's not putting out a fleece. He's not saying, God, do this really strange thing and then, and then, uh, I'll know that you are serious. He's actually proposing a test of character. Why do I say that? Uh, well, let me give you a little camel trivia here. And if you probably feel like the Discovery Channel, I'm sure this is somewhere to find on here. I had to do a lot of research to actually figure this out. But, uh, he comes there with 10 camels. 
Now, when a camel is done with a journey like that, typical, a typical camel will drink about 25 gallons. So that's 250 gallons of water. Rebecca's jar, the jars they usually carried, would carry about three gallons. And the, the, the wells back then, it was not like we think, you know, like you crank the little th- bucket down and crank it back up. It was a long spiral staircase that went down into the earth where the well was. You scooped out the water and then had to walk back up. So when she fills this thing with water, it's going to weigh at least 25 pounds, right? Because it's three gallons of water. So she needs to get 250 gallons of water, three gallons at a time, and she's got to go up and down the stairs to do it. So she's got to make at least 80 trips up and down these stairs just to water this man's camel who who she'd never met before. Why is this a test of character? What the servant clearly sees once she does this, what he clearly sees is that this is a woman of character. She's a woman of hospitality. She's a woman of service, a woman of sacrifice, a woman who's willing to, in the middle of the day, take two hours of her time, I would say at least, to go up and down and water this guy's camels, a complete stranger who, you know, she'd never met uh, in her life it's a test of character and hospitality and the servant you know he gets to see your character i think look what it says in 21 i think this is kind of funny he says the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the lord had prospered his journey or not so you know she's there working two hours carrying water up and down stairs and he's just gazing he's just like sitting there chilling back watching her do all the work so i would say she's not only a woman of character but she's a woman of strength because she was able to carry this much weight you know back and forth after the first service somebody said to me oh, i'm going to test that on my wife today when the football game comes on i'll flip the i'll flip the tv on and i'll ask her for uh to bring me a drink and if she brings me a drink and vacuums the carpet without being asked and i'll know that our marriage is good and i would say i do not advise such tests as that but uh you know, I'll let him go to his own peril. I won't tell you who that was. If he returns here next week, then we'll know he didn't try it. Either way, this was a, uh, it was a test. It was a test of character. He knows when he sees Rebecca, he's looking at a woman who has character. He's looking at a woman who will be worthy of, uh, of, who will be a good wife, good, good, uh, good to marry. And he gets so excited, he's got all this jewelry, and so he runs, he, get, he starts giving her jewelry. One of the things he gives her is a nose ring. And I don't know if you knew this, but in Scripture, a nose ring is a sign of blessing. So if you, you know, for the teenagers out there, if you train your mind in Scripture, you can just spring stuff like that on your parents, you know, all the time. You can just pull that right out. There's lots of, man, nobody really thought that was funny, the parents at least. Yes, I'll get a lot of emails on that. Uh, so I, I would just say test your decisions with character. For instance, if you're if you're going to bind yourself in a business agreement with somebody or a business partnership with somebody, make sure you're dealing with a person of character, um, especially if you're thinking about getting married, especially if you're thinking about how do I train and teach my kids how to marry well. Character is like the most important thing that you can imagine. They, they get a, did a survey recently, one on the campus of UVA, one on, and, and the same survey in a in like different Christian singles ministries, they said, like, what are you looking for in a spouse? You're like, what are the most important things that a spouse can, you know, for a spouse? And uh, the answer is almost identical, almost identical from college campus to, you know, Christian singles ministry. And it was stuff like, you know, um, has a good personality, fun to be with, good sense of humor, good looking, exciting, fun, I don't know, things like that. Character was seven out of eight on both lists. Character was at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, and I, I'll just tell you honestly that, and especially guys can think this way, but you can marry the hottest girl in the world, and if she is not a woman of character and you're not a person of character, your marriage is going to be miserable. Uh, 
I think what does it says what does it, it says in Proverbs that a um, a beautiful woman without character is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Uh, and that's pretty powerful, and that's just it's just reinforcing the idea that character is the most important thing. All right, so we need to train our mind to Scripture, test our test our decisions, uh, but also. Uh, we have to trust God. I'll, I'll just be honest. This is one of the hardest things. How do you trust God, especially when things aren't going well, circumstances, ordeals going on in your life, suffering, health issues, all kinds of things like that? How, how can you trust God's, God in, in a situation like that? What we see here is that, I mean, they clearly trust God's character. What does Abraham say? He will send his angel before you. In other words, he's going to prepare the way for you. God's going to be at work in these decisions. Uh, it might not be quite work out the way we think it will, but God is going to be going before you. When the servant prays in verse 12, what does he say? He says, Lord, show steadfast love to my master. He says steadfast love three other times in that passage. In other words, they're looking at God's character and saying, here's what we trust about God. We believe God is for us and not against us. And I wonder how many of you just simply need to hear that this morning. It feels like God is against you. Just to hear that God is for me and not against me. God is so much for you that he was willing to be against his own son on the cross in order to give you salvation, mercy, grace. That's how God is for us. Uh, Second, we trust God's work. Uh, The bottom line is that you and I are going to make some terrible decisions in life. We're going to screw things up. There's no doubt about it. There's no way around it. We can think of all kinds of ways we've done it in the past. If you've been around for Abraham, look at what Abraham... Abraham's had all kinds of terrible decisions. I mean, he almost lost his wife through the lies that he told. He broke, uh, broke up almost all kinds of other relationships with Ishmael and Hagar, all that, all that stuff. He's made some terrible decisions. But what I want us to look at is how God, in spite of that, is still at work in his life. If you look at these two verses, this is the first words of Abraham recorded in Scripture, and these are the last words in our passage today. Very first words, what does Abraham say to God? Behold, God, you have given me no offspring. It's an accusation. It's, a, it's, a, it's unbelief. That's where Abraham is there in the beginning. By the end, what is he saying? The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you can take a wife for my son, from there. His very first statement is an accusation against God. His last statement in Scripture shows an ability to trust God. It shows that over a lifetime, God has been at work in his life, that God has been tr- changing and redeeming him, that God has been leading him to this point. It takes a lifetime to learn to trust God this way, but Abraham, I think by the end of his life, was finally. And basically there. So we need to have trust and confidence that God is not only for us, but he's actually at work doing something in our lives and even taking the bad decisions we make and redeeming them for his good purposes. Uh, The last thing I'll say is that uh, we're called to trust God's plan. Now, Rebecca's family, they throw some kinks into this thing, right? At first they say this is God's will. But then they say, no, 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 let her stay with us for a while. We don't want her to go quite yet. And the servant says, she's got to come now if she wants this deal to get done. And uh, they say, well, let's call Rebecca and we'll ask her. And they call Rebecca. And with three simple words, she again proves her character. She says, I will go. She determines in her heart to go, be the wife of this man she's never seen because she believes it to be God's uh, purpose in her life. And so she goes, she leaves everything to be the wife of this man, Isaac, that she's never known. 
And she goes back and, you know, she meets Isaac and they actually do ride, kind of ride off in the sunset on camels. Um, but in verse 60, when she leaves, she gets a blessing from her family. And it says this, I think it's significant. They say this to her as she's walking out. They'll probably never see her again. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring, your children, possess the gate of those who hate them. They mention offspring. They mention children. And when she gets back, she marries Isaac. She and Isaac have children and their children lead us to the child. Their children lead us to the child. We find that in Matthew. You wonder why these genealogies are here. It's to put the pieces of the story together. It says in the beginning, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. It goes on to the bottom, uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. If Rebecca doesn't come, if Isaac and Rebecca don't get married and have kids, then Jesus doesn't come. If Rebecca doesn't come, Jesus doesn't come. And so what we see there is that in the craziest of circumstances, in the weirdest, most mundane things of watering camels and uh, helping out a servant and making these decisions, that God was at work bringing His very Son, the Savior of the world, into existence. I mean, that, that to be born. In the very mundane, in the, in the smallest details of life, the things they were just going about doing, God was using those things to bring Isaac and Rebekah together to eventually lead to their children and on down the line to Jesus. And I don't know what decisions that you have this morning or what decisions you're going to be working through the next weeks or months. The Scripture tells us to do these things plainly, to, to train our minds in Scripture, to test our decisions in community by character, and then to trust the Lord's work that even in the most mundane, crazy small, itsy-bitsy little things that we're doing in life, He is bringing about works of redemption and power and change and transformation, so much so that He can use the watering of camels to bring about the birth of His own Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the challenge of this passage. Lord, we know, all of us know that we have uh, made decisions that have not been for the best or not been good, and we thank You that in Christ You offer us forgiveness you offer us redemption you offer us healing Lord, i pray for the the will and the energy and excitement and the joy to follow you in this passage to walk with you to train our minds in scripture to truly submit ourselves to testing our decisions to community and character and and then lord give us the power to really to trust you in everything that we do to know that you are at work that you are leading you are guiding even though the circumstances may not look like it. I pray, Father, for your help, your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen.